This is Dr. David Bauer in his teaching on inductive Bible study. This is session number 10, Survey of Parts and Holes, Survey of Divisions, Sections, Segments, and Genre. You remember that we mentioned that there are actually three levels of observation. The first is the survey of the book, the observation of the book, the survey of the book as a whole. We've talked about that. I've actually presented two book surveys here, a survey of Jude, short book, pretty straightforward, and the survey of James, a little more complex. The second level, as you remember, of observation is a survey of parts as wholes, which involve the survey of divisions, a survey of sections, a survey of segments, more or less extended units uh, within uh, the book. And let me just uh, clarify terminology here. When you do a survey of the book, uh, the main units of the book would be considered divisions. And divisions are themselves broken down into or divided into uh, sections. And sections are divided into segments. Now, if sections are sufficiently large or long, you may have an intervening uh, category here, subsections. So, generally speaking, it goes from divisions to sections, possibly subsections, and to segments in terms of length. Now, just in case that's too simple, let me complicate uh, matters a bit and uh, point out that segments are defined by length. A segment is, uh, is two or more paragraphs about the length of an average chapter, though not necessarily corresponding to a chapter, bound together by common theme and, common, and, and, by, uh, and by common structure. Two or more paragraphs about the length of an average chapter, though not necessarily corresponding to a chapter, bound together by common theme and by common structure, which means really that a major division within a book might also be a segment. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what, what, what we found in my survey of, uh, of James, where, one, where the first major division of the, of the book is 1, 2 through 27. That is a major division of the book, but it is also a segment because it is a group of two or more paragraphs about the length of an average chapter bound together by a common theme and common structure. So for the sake of simplicity, we'll assume that we're talking about the survey of segments uh, here. But what I'm saying about the survey of segments can apply to the survey of divisions or the survey of sections. In terms of the identification of materials, uh, we might go ahead and identify the specific materials by giving a brief title to each paragraph. Uh, thereby recalling uh, the contents of the paragraph, helping us to, con to recall by association the, con the content of the segment by paragraphs and to be able, therefore, to think through the contents of the segment without recourse to the text. 
also structure, and you'll see that the, uh, the process of uh, segment survey corresponds generally to the process of book survey. So once again, as in book survey, so in segment survey, the center of what we're doing really is structural analysis. And structure involves here two main components, as it does in book survey, the identification of main units and subunits, the breakdown, and the identification of major structural relationships. And again, a major relationship within the segment uh, is one that controls the bulk of the segment. That controls more than half the material within the segment uh, as a whole. Uh, otherwise, you're getting into minor uh, relationships and are not addressing uh, really the macrostructure of the segment. And the same structural relationships that we talked about under book survey are relevant here as well. Again, we raise questions, definitive, rational, and implicational questions of each major structural relationship that we identified. Identify key versus or strategic areas that, that are representative of major relationships within the segment. Now, in contrast to book survey, though, uh, we don't, of course, go ahead and do again anything like uh, the uh, higher critical data. We've already done that for the entire book. But uh, we, and we note here the literary form or forms uh, employed. And uh, uh, we'll talk about that. We want to come back and talk about that a little bit more in just a moment because uh, that is very important uh, even for interpretation. A lot of what we say, we're going to say in just a moment with regard to lit literary forms or genre uh, will pertain to interpretation. Uh, and then, again, um, other major impressions. Uh, anything else that you think uh, should be mentioned that pertains to the segment as a whole but didn't fit under numbers uh, one through uh, five, or numbers, in this case, letters A through uh, E, uh, uh, might be mentioned uh, here. I want now, though, to pause and say a bit with regard to literary form or forms. Uh, and um, this pertains actually to the whole issue of genre. Um, matter of fact, these two terms are basically synonymous. Uh, by literary form, we really mean genre here. It's important to realize that every passage, really every speech act, involves genre. Uh, and uh, every culture... Uh, in every culture, there are certain genres, that is to say, certain forms uh, that, are, uh, that, are, that are recognized. When a writer makes use of a certain genre, the writer assumes that his readers uh, will recognize the genre, will be able to recognize that this is a genre that he is employing, and will, will, will also recognize the character of that genre and will and will know what kinds of reading strategies, what kinds of reading moves are necessary in order properly to construe this passage according to the genre in which it is cast, over against reading it according to other kinds of genre. Wittgenstein refers to this as rules of the language game. Genre is 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 actually involves a kind of implicit code. As I say, every passage involves a certain kind of genre, and every genre involves an implicit code. To the, the genre um, clues the reader in 
to interpret this passage according to the character and the, and the requirements of this genre over against reading it according to other kinds of genres. Now, genre is a, a kind of a, an interesting uh, category or uh, issue because uh, you have various levels of genre. You have uh, some genres that are quite general. General genres, we might say. And these general genres themselves uh, can be uh, subcategorized in terms of more specific genres. And these more specific genres themselves can be uh, subcategorized in terms of most specific genres. An example, a general genre like prose narrative can be subdivided into various kinds or various genres within prose narrative. And, for example, healing story or the like. And healing stories themselves can be subdivided further. Now, the genres that we identify at the point of segment survey are actually more general uh, genres, not more specific, because if you get into more specific genres, if you try to identify more specific genres at the point of observation, uh, you necessarily get into a great deal of interpretation. You have to assume that, that's, that, 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 uh, that some of these more specific genres were known and were used and were, would be recognized at certain times and by certain, uh, and by certain people in, 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 in the culture or subculture. Uh, to which the readers belonged and that kind of thing. So it's really safer to avoid a kind of premature interpretation uh, at this level to talk about uh, more broad categories of genre, of genre uh, than more specific ones. Uh, but uh, here are some of the major types of genre that we encounter within the Bible. Uh, the first we'll mention is discursive, which is a genre of logical argumentation. Um, this um, is really uh, the kind of thing that we find uh, virtually in all epistles. Uh, you might cite any passage here in James or in Hebrews, discursive, the, log the, the genre of logical argumentation. Uh, you find it, though, also in other parts of the canon. For example, Mark 13, the uh, end-time discourse in Mark's gospel, uh, is... Uh, uh, is uh, uh, is dis, dis, discursive. Um, one of the characteristics of discursive uh, logical argumentation or of genre, discursive genre, is that it is assumed, um, unless there are clear indications to the contrary, that the language that is used will be literal rather than figurative. Now, you can have figurative language in discursive literary form, uh, but uh, you, would, you would consider language to be figurative rather than literal in discursive uh, form uh, only if there are certain clues, certain indications within the text itself that in this particular 
discursive passage, we are to think in terms of figurative language rather than literal language, or related to that if it's impossible to make sense uh, of the passage by reading it in a literal versus figurative way. Uh, It is also the case that in logical argumentation, uh, we are not to assume necessarily chronological sequence. Uh, the, the, the passages move along uh, rather, really thematically, uh, logically, rather than necessarily chronologically. So we cannot assume that what is described, say, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, verse 25 of, uh, of discursive literary form is meant in terms of time actually to have taken place or to take place after what has been described in verse 22 or verse 23. Another type of uh, genre is prose narrative. This is a genre of story or of history. You have this, for example, in Acts 5, 1 through 11, the story or the reportage of the event of, uh, of Ananias and Sapphira uh, there, but of course in many, many other places in the New Testament as well. In the case of prose narrative also, the default assumption is that the language employed will be literal rather than figurative, although you can have figurative language, of course, in prose narrative uh, literary form, but only if there are pretty clear indications in the passage itself that in this prose narrative uh, passage we are to understand the language more uh, figuratively than literally. In prose narrative, over against what we said about discursive, the default assumption is that uh, the passage moves, does move along chronologically. Uh, that what is described in, 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 uh, in let's say, in, uh, in verse 40 of Poe's narrative passage is meant to be understood as coming after what was described in verse 38 and coming chronologically before what will be described in verse 45 and the like. But you can have exceptions to this. The exceptions are flashback or foreshadowing. Where, and of course, in the case of flashback, the author actually pauses from the storyline in the text and describes an event that in time actually took place earlier on. Uh, that is a flashback. It's sometimes referred to as, uh, as uh, uh, analepsis. And, uh, and when that happens, uh, actually, that is quite significant to observe. Because when the writer interrupts uh, story time uh, in the text and engages in flashback, or its opposite, engages in foreshadowing, where uh, the writer pauses and talks about an event that in time will take place in the future in relation to where we are in the story of the text. When you have that kind of temporal interruption, uh, the writer is actually drawing the attention of the reader to this, uh, generally speaking, and is urging us to consider why, in fact, this event that actually doesn't belong here in time is placed here in the logic of the text. What is it doing here? And how does it inform what's going, what, what is being described event-wise in this passage? <clears throat> now, um, beyond that, and, uh, we also have poetry. Um, and poetry is, of course, found more in the Old Testament than in the New. If you want to see uh, what uh, it looks like when, uh, a, when translators consider 
a passage to be in poetic literary form, just go look back in your Bibles to the Psalms. And you'll find that in the Psalms, for example, you have constant indentation. And that constant indentation is a way for English, for English uh, Bible translators to indicate that in their judgment, in this passage, we have poetic uh, form. Now, you do have some poetry in the New Testament, especially when, of course, the, Old Testament, the New Testament is quoting uh, Old Testament poetic passages, or when a New Testament writer is quoting from a hymn, a Christian hymn, uh, or perhaps, um, uh, or, uh, or perhaps uh, uh, is putting forth uh, a creed. Some of the creeds uh, uh, that are incorporated in the New Testament seem to have been composed uh, in poetry. But for the most part, you have poetry in the Old Testament rather than in the New Testament. Now, biblical poetry is not characterized for the most part by rhyme. Uh, as is the case with uh, our, at least a lot of modern English poetry, uh, for the most part you do not have rhyme, um, although there is some rhyme in uh, Hebrew poetry, but of course the rhyme is in Hebrew and is not uh, necessarily uh, ascertainable or uh, distinguishable uh, in the English translation. But it is characterized, poetry is, by by meter, uh, that is to say, by rhythm. If not by rhyme, at least by rhythm. So many beats to the line, uh, this kind of thing. And you can imagine that this would be quite helpful in interpreting biblical poetry, to know, for example, where the beat falls, where the rhythm is, in terms of where the emphasis may lie, and also how one stanza relates to another stanza in terms of sense. Unfortunately, although we know that Hebrew meter has that Hebrew poetry has meter, we do not understand it. We do not really know what was involved in, in Hebrew poetic meter, uh, nor uh, do we understand uh, it at all. And therefore, uh, uh, the biblical scholarship is unable really to make much use of insights from meter in poetry. But one thing we do know uh, that uh, we have in poetry, and uh, this, was, uh, uh, this was discovered especially and was emphasized by Robert Louth uh, several centuries ago, is parallelism. And there are essentially three types of parallelism in uh, poetry, and these are categories that were developed by Louth and have basically been uh, adopted uh, since that time. Uh, the first that we'll mention is synonymous parallelism, where the second line or the second stanza says essentially the same thing as the first, but only in different words. Now you can see how, how helpful this would be for interpretation. Uh, it, in terms of making more precise, more robust our understanding of the passage, but you have essentially the same idea presented in two different, um, in two different ways. Uh, and uh, so that the, very, the two lines, the synonymous lines or stanzas, actually mutually interpret each other. Uh, another type of, uh, of uh, parallelism is antithetical. We have this when the second stanza or the second line stands in contrast to the first. And again, these are mutually interpretive, extremely helpful. Uh, the third type, and I, we could give examples of this, but I won't take time to do it at this point, uh, is synthetic uh, parallelism. 
And um, basically, uh, uh, synthetic parallelism involves all parallelism that is not synonymous and is not antithetic. Uh, there are various other kinds of parallelism that, that, that do not fit under synonymous and antithetic, have various other functions. And the, so synthetic is really a kind of catch-all category uh, for all the others. Now, uh, parable is another type of uh, form. Uh, story, normally a story from everyday life that points to a spiritual truth and uh, could say a great deal more here with regard to parable. But the word parable, or English word parable, actually is a transliteration of the Greek, parabole, which means literally a casting alongside, a setting alongside. So what you have is uh, two, are, are two uh, elements within a parable, the story of the parable itself and the spiritual truth to which the parable points. Uh, I say spiritual truth. Biblical parables, of course, especially point towards spiritual truth, but the truth or the spiritual truth to which it points. And the main issue here, really, in parable, is what is the relationship between the story of the parable and the spiritual truth to which it points. Now, um, in the early church, the... Uh, uh, a major way, a favorite way, although this wasn't practiced by all the fathers by any means, but a favorite way of uh, interpreting parables was as allegory, where every detail of, the, of a parable had its own spiritual counterpart. Uh, and often this allegorical interpretation of the parables uh, had little to do with the story of the parable itself or the context, the gospel context of the parable, but um, it was uh, uh, really a matter of, uh, of every detail having its own spiritual counterpart that, that did not uh, contribute really to anything like the main point of the parable itself. This is an allegorical approach, and you find this among others in, uh, in St. Augustine, And this uh, was essentially, the, for the most part, the way parables were read and interpreted until the Reformation, and the Reformers took exception to uh, a lot of the fanciful alleg allegorical interpretation of parables in favor of the plain sense of parables, but the Reformers often didn't practice what they preached, and uh, they, they often uh, um, fell back into allegorical interpretation and, of course, in their interpretation, the Pope tended to, fat, to function pretty prominently and never in a very happy uh, sort of way. This was the way things stood until, at the end of the 19th century, we had uh, the production of what is arguably the most significant work in the whole history of parable interpretation by the German scholar Adolf Ulicker. Uh, his two-volume work, the first uh, volume uh, of his two-volume work on the parables came out in 1899, the second in 1910. That is, it's a two-volume work that has never been translated into English. The title is Deke Likeness Raiden Yesu. If it were to be translated into English, the title would mean The Parables of Jesus. 
he argued that the parables, as Jesus spoke them, had one point and one point alone. And all the details of the parable existed only to provide interest and color to the story. There was no spiritual counterpart uh, here at all. Uh, so you have Augustine who, who, has, who engages in, as I say, an allegorical approach where every detail has its own spiritual counterpart that goes all over the place. They're not really those details and the spiritual uh, truth uh, that are represented that are, that are rep represented by the various details are not related to each other uh, in terms of the logic of the parable. That kind of allegory on the one hand over against a uh, a, a rather severe uh, absolute one point only. Now you'll recognize, of course, immediately that when you have Jesus' explanation of the parables in the Gospels. For example, the 13th chapter of Matthew, and for example, the parable of the soils, you'll find that Jesus does, in fact, identify spiritual counterparts to details. The seed, in the parable of the soils, the seed represents this. This kind of soil represents this kind of person. This other kind of soil represents this other kind of person. The third type of soil represents this other kind of person. So you have, you have a movement toward a kind of allegory. So when Ulicker argued that the parables uh, have one point and one point only, he insists that that was true of the parables as Jesus himself spoke them. Uh, he insisted that the explanation of the parables, Jesus' explanation of the parables that we find in our Gospels, are, to use a technical expression, non-dominical. Uh, that they were not actually spoken by uh, our Lord, but were put into his mouth by the perhaps the evangelists. And so the, 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 the whole allegorical tendency that comes to full expression in, say, Augustine, begins already with the evangelists. Uh, but anyway, this was a view of the parables uh, that held sway for the most part until the middle of the 1980s or so. But at that point, uh, you had a number of scholars coming forward. I'm thinking here, for one thing, of uh, John Sider in a very significant article uh, that uh, appeared in the Journal of Biblical Literature, uh, Rethinking the Parables, The Logic of the Jeremias Tradition. Jeremias was a great New Testament scholar who followed uh, Ulicker in terms of his understanding of the parables. Sider says that, that even if one grants that the Jesus' explanation of the parables that we find in the Gospels are non-authentic, that they're non-dominical, they were put into the mouths of Jesus by the evangelists. Even one grants that insider said he wasn't sure that one should grant it. Even if one does, he said, really, if you're going to interpret these parables in terms of, the, in terms of their role in the Gospels, in, in terms of the final form of the text, you have to take seriously Jesus' explanation of these parables. Uh, and, if, and so the key to interpreting parables according to their New Testament context is to, is to interpret parables according to the method that Jesus employs in parable understanding as expressed in his own explanations. He says if you do that, you'll find that both Ulicker and Augustine are right to an extent. That Jesus' parables, as he explains them, do have one main point. They don't go all over the place. 
this detail having to do with this theological truth, this other detail having to do with this other theological truth. No, they, the parable does have one main point, but the, the details do have spiritual counter, count, count, do have spiritual counterparts, but they support and develop the one main point. So you have one main point that is developed by uh, the uh, spiritual truth um, expressed by the details of the parable. And really, by and large, this is the way the par- parable interpretation has gone uh, in uh, the past uh, several years. Now you can see how, how uh, recognizing uh, what's involved in parable interpretation is very significant in interpreting passages in this parable genre. If you accept, as I do, Sider's position here, that uh, if you read the parables, according to, um, according to their gospel context, including the explanations that you have, uh, parables have one main point with the details having spiritual counterparts that develop or expand upon that one main point, then that is a way, of course, that you will approach the parables, you will interpret them uh, accordingly. Now, uh, apocalyptic uh, was a, a, a genre that attempted to present um, really uh, transcendent divine action uh, in an encoded form. Apocalyptic was really not simply a, uh, a type of uh, literary form. It was, it was also a socio-religious movement uh, that uh, flourished about 200 years on either side of the birth of Christ. Um, and uh, this was a movement that, was, uh, that involved people who felt themselves marginalized, both religiously and socially, uh, from the elites, from the mainstream, uh, and uh, who actually um, believed that uh, although God, as creator, still exercised control and, and uh, rule over the world, that he had sovereignly decided not to manifest or make known, make clear, his rule over the world and wouldn't and would not do so until uh, the end, until the eschaton. In the meantime, God was active and was moving history toward the great consummation, the eschaton, the apocalypse, but in in hidden ways, ways that were not really observable by persons who were not given help to see it. And so apocalyptic, uh, the apocalyptic movement attempted to discern God's work in subtle and hidden ways in the world and also, of course, to declare what God had in mind at the end. And this was expressed uh, in, uh, in highly symbolic language. Of course, the most obvious example of apocalyptic literary form in the New Testament is Revelation 4 through 22, in symbolic sort of language, uh, highly visual sort of language. And, and really, it, had inv- it involved being able to see the invisible. And that's why you have uh, uh, such a pictorial, such an emphasis upon pictorial or visual sort of, uh, of uh, uh, figurative language here. Uh, and um, uh, really, you have a kind of consistent use of figurative language. So, in other words, the same figures tend to appear in 
one apocalyptic work after another, and they tend to have the same significance. They tend to point to the same reality, so that once you're initiated into apocalyptic thought, you can pretty much go from one apocalyptic work uh, to, uh, to another. The uh, default assumption in apocalyptic is that the language will be figurative rather than literal. Uh, you can, uh, again, have literal language in certain apocalyptic passages, but uh, the default assumption is that minus the uh, uh, clear indications of figurative language, of uh, literal language, that the language should be understood as figurative rather than literal, uh, as it were. And also there is the assumption that a passage moves along not necessarily chronologically, but rather uh, topically. Uh, and so you cannot assume that, say, what is described in chapter 12 of, a, of an apocalyptic work is meant to be understood as coming chronologically after what had been described in chapter 11. In fact, uh, there are a lot of people who uh, tend to read apocalyptic as involving chronological sequence. At least in the Western world, there is a tendency to read all literary forms essentially as prose narrative and to assume chronological sequence, even in cases like this, which, of course, involves an apocaly- a, a, a genre that is not used and is not familiar anymore, uh, to read uh, even apocalyptic, which, as I say, does not move along in terms of genre, gener- generic expectations, chronologically, to read it in a chronological way. And this has led to uh, uh, a whole uh, industry, if we may put it so, I don't... Uh, I'm not using that language necessarily pejoratively, but uh, what might say, there are a number of people who have made a uh, career of eschatology and of laying everything out in terms of the details of the end on the basis of a chronological reading of uh, Revelation 4 through 22, uh, which uh, may be problematic. And then drama or dramatic prose, which involves the, really involves prose, but the personification and vivid description of events or ideas for their moving effects. So although it's in the form of, of, of prose uh, it, or story, uh, the point is not to relate a happening or a story as such, but to use the uh, various characters or the various events in the prose passage as representing cosmic realities. I think a great example here is the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, the famous Valley of Dry Bones uh, chapter, where it's quite clear that Ezekiel doesn't actually go into a valley and see dry bones that come together and are enfleshed uh, before his eyes, this kind of thing. He's not talking about that as an event, but using the prose in a dramatic fashion to talk about uh, realities, other kinds of realities uh, that God is about. Another example of this would be the 7th and 8th chapters of Proverbs, where wisdom is presented as a virtuous woman and uh, folly, foolishness, is presented as a prostitute. And uh, he's not really talking, although he's, he, he uses language that refers to, uh, uh, to a prostitute and what a prostitute does and the seductions of prostitution and all this kind of thing. He's really not talking about prostitution. His point is to use prost- prostitution or a prostitute as an image for... Um, for wisdom. So, uh, uh, quite clearly, it's important to interpret passages um, uh, according to their genre and not engage in what we might call a genre of a violation of genre 
which happens, as I say, if you interpret a passage that belongs to one literary genre as though it belonged to another. An example I gave is from apocalyptic. Uh, to interpret apocalyptic as though it were prose narrative, including moving along and assuming a chronological sequence when, in fact, it's inappropriate, given that genre, to assume a kind of chronological sequence. Now, uh, the place to go for uh, a description of and further study of and an understanding of these genres, these various genres, the kind of the default uh, re uh, reference were to go to for something like that is Bible dictionaries. Now, I realize that, that, that many of you who are watching uh, this video may not have access uh, to various kinds of secondary resources. But let me just say, if you do have access to secondary resources, either in your own libraries or in libraries that may be uh, available to you, or perhaps even online, uh, the one, one of the most significant, and I think everything else being equal, the most significant kind of resource to have for biblical studies is Bible dictionary. And if you have access to it, if you can afford it, a multi-volume Bible dictionary is really appropriate for anyone involved in Christian ministry. A single-volume Bible dictionary simply is too selective, too brief, too sketchy in order to be a great deal of help. Now, uh, I have actually produced uh, a bi bibliography of works on various aspects of biblical study. It's entitled Essential Bible Study Tools for Ministry. And I do have a section here on Bible dictionaries. The most authoritative biblical or Bible dictionary is, is probably, con is probably uh, considered to be the Anchor Bible Dictionary. It's six volumes. Uh, it is somewhat expensive. Uh, it is available, incidentally, both in book form and also electronically. One that is not quite as, uh, as, as, uh, as extensive, but still a very robust, multi-volume um, Bible uh, dictionary is the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, often referred to uh, by uh, acrostically as ISBE, I-S-B-E. If you, if you make use of this, you want to, you want to be sure to, to get the uh, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the one that is edited by Bromley and not by Orr. The one that was produced by J. Edwin Orr came out in 1929. is quite dated. It is being sold by, some, uh, by, by a major publishing house being touted by it. You do not want that. It's really dated. You want to get the more, more recent uh, edition edited by Bromley. Another very helpful one, and actually this is the most recent one, uh, is uh, the New Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible, published by Abingdon. Uh, that is in five volumes. But they have articles on all of these uh, literary forms. They go into detail and are quite helpful in terms of the interpretive significance of these literary forms. Now, uh, in the next uh, segment, we are actually going to look at the segment survey do a segment survey of the first chapter of James. And so again, before you watch that uh, video, I'd encourage you to read the first chapter of James. Try to do what you can in terms of uh, 
making sense of it by way of a segment survey. Uh, and then uh, we'll talk about that at the beginning of the next segment. This is Dr. David Bauer in his teaching on inductive Bible study. This is session number 10, Survey of Parts and Holes, Survey of Divisions, Sections, Segments, and Genre. Mm-hmm. 